Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. Welcome to Lift Up Jesus with Pastor Dudley Rutherford. I'm Kyle Welch. We are here every weekday at this time to share the good news of Jesus and to lift up his name to this city. No matter if you are listening right now from your car or at home or in your place of work, we believe that today's sermon from Pastor Dudley will be a blessing to everyone. So if you can, get out your Bibles and let's join Pastor Dudley right now with his message. There are times where just a few words spoken carry life-altering changes. For example, the words, I do, will change your life forever. Can someone say amen? The words, guilty as charged sometimes will affect your life for a long, long time. The word cancer, just that word, has the impact to change your life. The word forgiven, it's a great word, amen? Amen. The words I love you can change your life forever. I want to suggest to you that one of the most powerful utterances that we will ever make that have the power to alter your lives are the three words, your kingdom come how many times have we recited the lord's prayer and we said those three words and we didn't even know what we were saying well i want to start today with some background and some history the lord's prayer is in matthew 6 but i want to go back to matthew chapter 1 and what you have is sometimes something very boring to read uh, especially those of you who do not like history you have what's called the genealogy of jesus and what you have in that chapter is a genealogy, Jesus' lineage, starting from Abraham, going all the way to Jesus. There are some 40 different names in chapter 1 in this genealogy, but if I had time, I could actually show you a lot in this genealogy. But what I want you to note is there are many kings throughout the genealogy of Jesus. If you look quickly at verse 6 and 7, you have David. David was a king. Then you have Solomon. Solomon was David's son who also became king. In verse 7, you have a man named Rehoboam. He became king. Verse 8, you have Asa. And then you have Jehoshaphat, one of the fat brothers. (laughs) They were both kings. In verse 9, you have Uzziah. Uzziah was king. Look at verse 10. There's a man named Hezekiah in verse 10. Hezekiah was a king. Verse 11, you have a man named Josiah. Josiah was a king, King Josiah. The point is this. When you look at the genealogy or the lineage of Jesus, it's important to note that Jesus came from a line or a lineage of kings. Keep that in mind. 
Now turn the page to chapter 2. What happens in chapter 2? Well, you know the story around Christmas time. You have the three wise men or the wise men. And the wise men are following a star. And the star lands over a stable in a little town called Bethlehem. Now why are these wise men from the east following that star? Because they believe that the star indicated that a new king had been born in the land of Judea. In fact, if you look at chapter 2, the first two verses, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod. Everybody say King Herod. I'm going to come talk about that. Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and they asked this question, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? Now the problem with that question is there already was a king of the Jews. Who was that? Well, it was King Herod. Herod was known as Herod the Great. That was one of his nicknames. Everybody say Herod the Great. That was one of his nicknames. The reason he was great was because he was a magnificent builder. He built buildings that the world had never seen up to that point. He was the one that built the palace on top of Masada, if you've ever gone with us to the Holy Land. He was the one that built a city called Caesarea in northern Israel on the Mediterranean Sea, which was basically a Roman town in Israel that became the major uh, thoroughfare for the east, people traveling east to west and north to south. It was a major trade route, north, south, east, and west. The guy made a buco amount of money because he ran that town. He was also called Herod the Great because Herod the Great was the one who built the temple. It's called the second temple, Herod's temple, the one that Jesus walked in and out up on the temple mount. Herod was the one that built that building. The foundation of that building, which is the Western Wall, still remains today 2,000 years later. He was called Herod the Great, except he should have been called Herod the Ruthless Killer because Herod stole his throne like a fox. He had his own son killed to keep power. He had his own wife killed. And he was a puppet king under Rome's control because Rome actually ruled Israel and Herod was their puppet king. But his, he was actually called Herod, king of the Jews. That was Herod's title. No wonder when the wise men show up in chapter 2 searching for the new king that Herod ordered that all the male babies in and around the vicinity of Bethlehem to be killed. That's how evil he was. That's what he was willing to do to remain king of the Jews himself and to remain in power in Judea and Galilee. Such is the world in history of all pharaohs and Caesars and emperors and czars and presidents and kings and queens and dictators who rule ruthlessly, no matter how ruthless they are, no matter how power-hungry they are, all kings come and go. There will be another ruthless man who will take the throne after Herod's rules. And powerful nations and powerful kings throughout history, they all rule, but ladies and gentlemen, they only rule for a season. And according to the gospel, if you go over to Matthew chapter 4, for a simple carpenter 
He's got no army. He's got no soldiers. He's got no weapons. But Jesus arrives onto the scene, and in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, the Bible says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, Jesus' kingdom is unlike the kingdoms, normal kingdoms. He had no land. He had no castles. He had no walls. As I said, he had no armies. His kingdom transcends geographical and temporal limitations because his kingdom is a supernatural kingdom. Jesus' kingdom surpasses the ambitious longings and lust of power of Babylon's Nebuchadnezzar or Persians' Darius or the Greeks' Alexander the Great or Rome's Caesar's. When Jesus, a Nazarene peasant, spoke of a kingdom, trust me, it startled the first century Jews and reignited within them a dream that had begun to fade. For Jews who were living in the first century, when Jesus began this kingdom talk, it would have struck a resonating chord within them because everyone living in Jerusalem under Rome's occupation, they knew that a thousand years earlier, King David was the one who expanded the kingdom. His son Solomon ruled next, but his reign was very disappointing because in the year 925 B.C., the nation of Israel was divided between two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and eventually both of those two kingdoms were conquered. The Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom in 721 B.C. and carried the northern part of Israel up to Assyria. The southern kingdom was captured by the Babylonians in the year 586 B.C. And the Jews were carried off into captivity in the land of Babylon. And then you have the 350 years before Jesus walked on this earth. The 350 years before Jesus arrived... There was an endless circle of kings and kingdoms ruling over the Jews. First the Persians, and then the Greeks, and then the Syrians, and then the Egyptians, and now finally the Romans. And out of the blue, a Nazarene peasant arrives with a startling message that the kingdom of God is near. That phrase alone aroused their crushed hopes. It fueled their empty hearts. It set the stage for an uprising and a revolt. They could taste the end of a thousand years of conflict and suppression. Jesus, they thought, was about to restore the kingdom of Israel. No wonder in John chapter 6, verse 15, after Jesus had performed all these miracles... He had just performed a miracle where he fed some 5,000 people supernaturally. And all of the Jews were looking at him like, man, this is the guy that's going to lead us back to power. The Bible says that Jesus, knowing that they intended to come, read these words, and make him king by what? By force. They wanted a leader who would lead them back to glory. The problem is his kingdom 
was not of this world. The problem is Jesus' kingdom is nothing like the world had ever seen before. In fact, it was in John 18, even Pilate said to Jesus, Are you a king? Implication is, you don't look like a king. You don't act like a king. What kind of king are you? And that's when Jesus said these words, My kingdom is not of this world. He didn't look like a king. He didn't talk like a king. He didn't act like a king. And that's the end of the history lesson. So let's answer these three questions in your notes. Where is the kingdom of God? What is the, what is, what is the kingdom of God? What is that? When we say kingdom of God. Well, the word kingdom, write this down. The word kingdom means to rule or to reign. It means to rule or to reign. So when you talk about the kingdom of God, you're talking about the reign of God, the rule of God. Now, where does God rule? Now, we know that God rules in heaven. We know that. How do we know that? Yeah, our cell phones tell us. But here's what the Bible says in Psalm 115, in case you have any idea where God rules. It says, our God is in heaven. And what is, what is God doing up there? What's the Bible say? What's God doing up there? Well, he does whatever he pleases. You know why? Because it is good to be king. Does anyone have any problem with God doing whatever he wants to do? Does anybody have any problem with that? He does whatever he does, ever, whatever he wants to do in heaven. Now look at Isaiah chapter 40. Look at these words. He, God, sits enthroned above the circle of the what? The earth. He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. It's peoples, peoples, you and I, we are like grasshoppers. The most powerful man in the universe is nothing but a grasshopper in the eyes of God. And God stretches out the heavens. That's the stars. Have you ever looked up and seen the stars at night, the Milky Way? The Bible says that he stretches out the heavens like a canopy and he spreads them out like a tent. The stars, all the stars in the universe are nothing but a pup tent for all of you grasshoppers. That's what verse 22 says. Verse 23 says he, God, will bring the princes. Those are the powerful people on earth. He brings the princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to absolutely nothing. It doesn't say this, but I'll say it with a snap of his finger. And verse 24, now look at verse 24. Talking about the kings and the princes and the rulers and the czars and the pharaohs. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground that he, God, just blows on them and they wither and as a whirlwind just sweeps them away like chaff. That's the God of the heavens. There is no question that God rules heaven. But when the Bible speaks, your kingdom come, the kingdom of God, the answer to where does God reign, write this down, the answer, the kingdom of God is wherever God reigns. Wherever that is, that would be the kingdom of God. Now, as I've already mentioned, we know that God reigns in heaven. Everything happens in heaven according to his plan. Heaven is perfect. Everybody say heaven is perfect. Heaven is perfect in every sense because he, he's king. He rules. He rules heaven. But what about the earth? Does he rule here on earth? Well, not so much. Yet. 
Because he will one day. Satan has set up all kinds of strongholds on this earth. God actually kicked him out of heaven. He says, you're not messing with us up here. And he's he's down here on earth. And so Satan is down here trying to muck up everything God's trying to do on this earth. And he sets up dominions over nations, over countries, over people, over hearts. Be it abortion, be it pornography, be it idolatry, be it immorality of any kind in anybody's heart. Wherever Satan can sow havoc and destruction, he will. Listen, there are many places on the surface of the earth where Satan has set up strongholds. God rules in heaven. He desires to rule here on earth. But currently, Satan has been let loose on the face of this earth. So the true kingdom of God, now get this, the kingdom of God is wherever God reigns. So my second point is this, whenever you pray this prayer, what exactly is it that you, when you say your kingdom come, what are you actually praying? You're asking, number one, write this down, you're asking God to rule in your heart. When you say your kingdom come, you're asking or requesting that the Lord, the king of the universe, to walk into your world and to walk into your family, and to walk into your marriage, and to walk into your office, to walk into your school, to walk into your home, to walk into your heart, and occupy and rule and reign in your life. That's what you're saying. Now... There is a battle right now. It's being fought right now. There's a struggle, a tug of war for who rules your heart right now. There's a battle being fought for every one of your hearts. You do know this, do you not? You're not just sitting here. There's a tug of war in all of the heavens for who's going to rule your heart this very moment. Your kingdom come is a submissive prayer. You're saying, you see, when you pray, how many of you pray? Raise your hand real quick, real quick. When you pray, the reason you pray is not to inform God what your plans are. The purpose of your prayers is to call on God to do his plan through you. Your kingdom come. You don't, you don't pray my kingdom come. You pray your kingdom come. And it means that you are yielding control of your life and you are yielding your agenda and you are yielding your plans over to his sovereign and saving reign. You're asking God to rule your heart as he rules all of heaven. Matthew chapter 5, if you go back, if you go back, remember in chapter 4, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of God is near. But in chapter 5, he actually begins to explain what the kingdom of God looks like. When Jesus comes to rule in your heart, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 is what's called the Sermon on the Mount. And just as Jesus, he just doesn't fit the look of a conquering king, what he calls you and I to do doesn't fit for an army that's come to conquer He says in Matthew chapter 5, if you want to know what the kingdom of God looks like, look at verse 3. Blessed are the poor in... 
the poor in spirit, for theirs is the, the kingdom. Verse 5, blessed are the, the meek. The what? Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for power. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for fame. What's this say? What, what's that say? What kind of a kingdom is this? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for right for for righteousness. Verse seven. Blessed are the merciful. Verse eight. Blessed are the pure in heart. Verse nine. Blessed are the. We can't even say that word in the United States. What kind of a kingdom is that? The one that looks and acts just like the king? King Jesus. You see, in the kingdom of God, it's unlike any other kingdom. In the kingdom of God, we learn to love our neighbor as ourselves. In the kingdom of God, we hunger after righteousness, not unrighteousness. In the kingdom of God, we let go of hatred and bitterness and prejudices. And instead, we offer love and forgiveness even to those who've mistreated us. In the kingdom of God, we let go of greed and the hoarding of goods and the hoarding of material possessions. Instead, we learn to give and to sacrifice and to serve. In the kingdom of God, we empty ourselves of pride and ego and lust, and we strive for a thing called purity. We strive for humility. We strive for contriteness in the kingdom of God. And in the kingdom of God, we cling. We cling to what is holy. And we run away from what's evil and immoral. In the kingdom of God, instead of wanting to be served, we are the ones who desire to serve. You see, this is no feeble request. That's why I said earlier, you've said these words many times. And you really don't even know what you're asking for. This is not a feeble request. It's a life-altering prayer. Your kingdom come. You're inviting God of the universe to come and to enter your life and to rule. And you cannot say these words. You cannot say your kingdom come if you don't mean it. It's a blessing for us to bring this program to you every day. We exist only by our faithful partners who support us through their prayers and financial gifts. If Pastor Dudley's message has been a blessing to you, we would like to encourage you to consider joining in partnership with us so we can continue to be here every day to bless others with this important ministry. Your gifts, whether large or small, are greatly appreciated and go directly to help keep us on the air. You can find out more about supporting us by calling our toll-free number, 888-818-4777. That number again is 888-818-4777. 4777. We have operators standing by and ready to take your call. You can also support us by going to our website, liftupjesus.com forward slash reach. That address again is liftupjesus.com forward slash and then the word reach. We live in the most distracted culture in the history of the world. 
We see about 10,000 messages every day. We even touch our phones about 2,000 times a day. We're literally being overwhelmed with information. That's why there's no better time than right now for Dudley Rutherford's remarkable new book, One Thing, Rediscover a Simpler Faith in Our Complicated World. In this timely book, Pastor Dudley invites you to open your Bible and look closely at seven key passages of Scripture where you'll find the beautifully uncomplicated phrase, One Thing. These scriptures will quiet all the noise that you're hearing and call you back to a simpler faith. Dudley Rutherford has discovered the secret of how to focus our lives on the one thing that matters. What if you could find that simplicity? It's waiting out there, and this is your roadmap to freedom. Contact Lift Up Jesus today and get your copy of One Thing, the book that could finally change everything. I'm Kyle Welch. We invite you to join us every weekday at this time when we again lift up Jesus with Pastor Dudley. Pastor Dudley.